This is the Deep Dive with Brooke Spector. Investigative conversations about issues that impact our lives. Be curious. Friday mornings at 9 a.m. Only on 101.9 High FM. And good morning. And this is Brooke Spector. And we are, in fact, engaging in a deep dive. And today's guest is Malcolm Perkey, a name that should be familiar to a lot of you. Uh, Malcolm's history in education and theater and theater education and public thought uh, go back decades now. Uh, Malcolm taught at the University of Witwatersrand in drama department. Uh, Malcolm was one of the uh, creative, the major creative figures in the Junction Avenue Theater Company, producing, among other works, much of it from his own hand, uh, Sophia Town. Uh, which I gather now is a set work for high schools in this country. Uh, and if you haven't seen it, when it makes its next inevitable return somewhere, someplace, you have to. I've seen it numerous productions, numerous places, and it still excites every time. Malcolm has, uh, he had a long career as the artistic director at the Market Theater uh, for eight years, nine years, eight years. And uh, he... Uh, he did some creative work at an American university, in addition to having gone to graduate school in the United States. Uh, and his, uh, the work he did at Towson State University was to bring the, uh, the Minotaur, uh, these, no, not the Minotaur, I beg your pardon, uh, the Icarus and Daedalus story through to uh, a, a more modern, uh, more psychological retelling of the of the myth and its implications. Nod your head if I'm close. You're close. Okay. <laughs> Good morning, Brooks. Uh, I'm waiting to decide when I can say hello. <laughs> but um, one more thing. Okay. And, and he's now affiliated with the uh, with AFTA, which now has several branches in the in the country, teaching drama, teaching film, teaching acting, teaching playwriting. Good morning, Michael. Malcolm. <laughs> Good morning. I don't know who you Good are. Good morning, Brad. I mean, Brooks. <laughs> How are you? Yeah, it's lovely you. to be here and lovely. And thank you. It's an honor to be talking to you on this program. No, it's it's a pleasure. I've, I've had I've, I've had what I think is a is a long and and uh, I wanted to say fruitful, but certainly thoughtful friendship with Malcolm for many years. But the question has has come to my mind recently as a as a function of the the two-year hiatus with, with live performing art in this country uh, from the COVID epi epidemic. Is there still a future for live drama? Are audiences still willing to go to it? Are they still interested in being engaged in it? And I say this because he's also now most recently uh, had a hand in the creation of a new theater in suburban Johannesburg in, in Linden, the theater, the theater in Linden, which is using a facility which used to be a church. This is correct. Another institution whose future is uh, sometimes concerning. Well, well, why don't we start um, by saying that I'm absolutely, I absolutely believe that live theater is going to reemerge as a real force. Uh, we've seen that in various productions at the moment, including uh, If a Tree Falls, which I just produced as opposed to direct at the Theatre Linden. 
we played to uh, many full houses, which was absolutely gratifying. And I'm, I'm, I'm told on, on, in that many of the theatres that have reopened are doing very well at the moment. So there's no reason for theatre not to re-establish its uh, world as it was. But let me say that when I worked at the market for nine years, not eight, but that's fine. It felt like 20. It felt like, it felt like a lifetime. Um, one of my principles was I had a three-pronged three approach. And that it's a very simple approach, but very hard to execute. And the first, the first point was one has to make theatre so compelling, no one can avoid it. And the second point was that they have to know about it. And the third point was when they come to the theatre, they have to have a very good time. Now, if you think about those three, they're very easy to say and hard to achieve. Compelling theatre, what does that mean? So hard to understand what that means in our current moment, but we can draw from history. We can draw from the, from the early 50s all the way till now. Think about the work of Fugard. Think of, work about the, the, think of the market theatre. Think of um, many of the playwrights and contributors to the theatre in the 70s and 80s and into the 90s. We just have to find the new generation and the new topics. The next point is, of course, we have to sort out our communication systems. And I am reluctant to use Facebook and Instagram and so on. But because I was so dedicated to this project, I just did. Um, I really worked to use a, a campaign of social media. I, and I, we kept running into announcements of it. Absolutely. And I, I'm, 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 you know, it, it used to be... Um, the, the, the given knowledge that you shouldn't blast people with too much stuff, but I don't believe that anymore because it just rolls through all the time. So one just has to keep learning how to communicate with one's audience and of course develop databases and so on. And then the third point was when they come to the theater, have, have a good time. That's the easiest point. That's about making sure there's good parking, make sure there's good lighting, make sure there's uh, toilets. And at the Theater Linden, we have big challenges because our toilets are quite far away and um, we've got lots of lovely parking there. Uh, we're busy working on our lighting, but 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 it's it's a beautiful project to be involved in. It's a secular facility <coughs> in what used to be a consecrated space. That is correct, and in fact, it sits on the Doxadeo campus, and Doxadeo is uh, very dedicated to advancing culture as well as worship, and so that tension and that interesting place between culture and worship. I mean, that goes right back to the ancients, the relationship between worship, telling stories, engaging in live theater of some sort, live performance and so on. So I'm very, I'm very excited to be involved with the theater, Lynn, but I'm very aware of the challenges and we have no subsidy, no support yet. And we've managed already to show that it can be a lovely space. I went to see a performance of a play which was just done there. Uh, if a tree falls, I mean, you're you're obviously prepped to discuss it, but uh, the reason I mention it is because I looked around the room and it was an audience of people who I knew were dedicated, professional, veteran theater goers. They were people for whom the idea of coming into a venue, sitting down and seeing live actors deliver a program imitative of, but not exactly the same as life on stage, and then become normal people again afterwards. But there weren't many 20-year-olds or 25-year-olds. Okay, so you 
you missed the chance. And I will talk about it in a moment if you need uh, to take your ad break. We will do that and we'll be back in just a minute with Malcolm Perky. This is The Deep Dive with Brooke Spector. And we are indeed back with The Deep Dive and I am actually Brooke Spector and my guest sitting next to me in my own house in my kitchen is Malcolm Perky with all the different creative attributes and veteran experiences in theater. And we were just talking about my concern that live theater as a thing in the same way as religion as a thing is passing by uh, with younger people. It's no longer something that they automatically go to. But you missed, a, you missed something very important. So teach, we, teach. Okay, I'll, I'll just tell you what happened with If a Tree Falls. And, you know, we opened to the public in a preview on June 16th, Youth Day, commemorating the Soweto Uprising. And um, I negotiated with various schools and groups to bring in youth. So we had a, a large group from King David. We had a large group from Greenside High. We had a large group from the National School of the Arts. We had groups from uh, other institutions like Lafika and so on. And we had uh, actually an overfull house just before we were... Fire marshal didn't show up. Well, yeah. I mean, overfull in terms of COVID, but full in terms of the new rules that we are lucky to have now. It was electric. They were absolutely attentive. They gave it a standing ovation. And the word has come back to me via someone like Renos. You know, the students were absolutely electrified. And what we have to do is we have to accept, as they do in America, for example, that, you know, we get the youth in as soon as we can, even if it means special days or open days or free tickets or very highly subsidized tickets because they are the next generation. And I do believe that, obviously, in this complex and diverse country, we have to create a program that can cross over. But I also believe we can create a pro program that is uh, dedicated to a particular group. And, you know, Theatre Linden has a, a kind of a meaning in relation to its northern suburbs home. But hopefully the program can be so diverse and interesting that it will change and grow. And let me give you two examples. We had um, Black Jazz there, full, a couple of weeks ago, months ago, actually. And this weekend, this weekend, you can go and watch Elton, you know, a concert. Is he coming from London? Yeah, he's coming from London in, in spirit. Um, <laughs> three nights tonight. Uh, what is tonight? Anyway, Today's Friday. I Friday, think. so Saturday and Sunday night. Okay. Um, Check, your, check all the websites. But the point is, it's going to be a different audience again. And we've got um, certain Afrikaans music that comes in, different audience again. And we had um, a beautiful concert between, you know, electronic organ and violin. And that was full with another kind of an audience. And let me tell you about this electronic organ. It is, a, it's a new kind of uh, computer sampler. It can play any organ from any part of the world provided you sample it. So today we are using the organ from the Viennese church in, and I found that astounding. It's not very big at all, but it plays this enormous sound. 
well, the synthesizer revolution from the late 60s onward made an enormous difference in the way musicians create music. Absolutely. So, so to, I'm trying to answer your question that I'm a great passionate believer in how we get audiences into theaters. I ask it because I mean, every time I've been associated with the theater in this country or in, in other places for that matter, uh, everybody in that institution is perpetually worried about the possibility that theater as a live performance venue is dead, is dying or finished or is on its last breath. So let me, let me quote my, one of my favorite sort of maybe teachers. Maybe Aristophanes worried about this too. Well, maybe 2,500 years Peter ago. Peter Brook wrote somewhere, everywhere in the world, theater is dying. And then he goes on to write, this is good, this is necessary. And I, mean, I take it to mean that we, unless we renew what we are doing, how we think about it, how we make it compelling, that word I love. We, you know, Peter Brook is actually saying it deserves to die. If it can't serve its people in a deep and meaningful way, not in a surface way, then it must be rethought. And I spent nine years at the Market Theatre thinking about that. And let's be frank, as you know, Brooks, um, I can proudly say I doubled the numbers and the income in my time. Is that true? It is. Uh, you were there, you I were on the board. I watched him. I watched it all happen. Some of the events, uh, some of the productions missed the mark and others, you know, you you basically had to hire uh, extra guards to beat people off yep. so they didn't come in. I'm thinking in particular of one that horrified a lot of people. Uh, must be Paul Krutburg. Oh, yes. <laughs> oh. I mean, you know, I, 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 I we did. Had, we I, had some very scary people show up. Oh, but you know what? Who wanted in. Uh, but we also did plays like Death of a Colonialist. And we did plays, you know, like children's theatre projects. And we, we really, again, tried to diversify the programme, keep it serious, but not solemn. In other words, you know, make it important, but not sort of self-satisfied and also really with a great attitude to humor in it. And we're speaking with Malcolm Perky, whose uh, theatrical background in this country is close to unrivaled in terms of the variety and circumstances in which he has worked, taught, learned, and experimented from universities to independent theater groups, and now most recently to a new theater uh, that has come to life in the otherwise well, what used to be very quiet, very calm, very sedate suburb of Linden, uh, which now is is a little is a little bit more of a vibe to it, and some yeah. some nice restaurants and some nice clubs and this kind of thing. So, so Brooks, I mean, thank you for your words; they're very kind. I I, I have to say, I, I sometimes try to summarize it like this: I've had four big lives, and my first big life was to teach twenty years at Wits in the School of Dramatic Art. And that was a long haul, but I loved every minute of it. And I, Witz was extremely generous in giving us space to do other work. And, and this, one, this was at a difficult, I mean, yeah, we, we, were we right, can forget we're talking, now. We're talking about the early eighties yeah, all the I way. Mean, I mean, really, we, we straddled the most difficult politics and we managed. So that's my first big life. The second big life links to that. And that was Junction Avenue mm -hmm. from 1976 till 1999. There's an overlap, but they're different. Well, we used Witz's facilities with their gener generosity of spirit and their openness. And, and, I, and I'll never 
forget that in spite of all its complicated history and its current history and so on. And the third big life, the third big life was to be, you know, I suppose recruited in a way to the market theater, a, a job I should never have got by politics of the day, a white male over 50, but um, I prepared very well. And I suppose I thought I wasn't gonna get a chance so I was allowed to say what I wanted. That's that usually, was fascinating. That's usually the best option in a job interview. And then, well, of course, it's a wonderful uh, gift. That's the right. You really to... think you can't get it, and therefore you tell the whole truth and nothing but the truth. And then people either either accept it or they yeah, or they don't. And then the last big life, I suppose, of my four, was to be again recruited to after in its moment of transition when they started needing deans. And I was the first dean of the AFTA Johannesburg campus. AFTA used to stand for African Film and Drama Academy, but now it, it's just it's now just name. initials. It's just an it's name. Now it is the School of the Creative Economy. And I'm very delighted to be involved in the film writing program, newly emerged as a degree, the Bachelor of Creative Arts, Bachelor of, I always say Creative Arts, I suppose because I'm always thinking like that, but the Bachelor of Creative Writing and I was deeply involved in the syllabus before I went for my sabbatical to America to the very exciting place of Tarzan, meaning exciting for me because they gave me an absolute blank canvas. For those who don't know where Tarzan is, it's, uh, it's in the suburbs of, uh, well, the built up suburbs now, I guess, of the city of Baltimore. That really is in Baltimore for all intents and purposes. And started out as a small teacher's college years and years and years ago and gradually has become a state university. And the project that I was allowed to develop with uh, Professor Tavia Lafollette was, was actually a homage, not only to Daedalus and Icarus, but also to the Minotaur. So you were, I was right you were writing on, in both ways, but also <laughs> we had a poetess I say poetess advisedly because, you know, I know these days you're supposed to say poet, but a woman poet who sought in the real world a consultation with Freud. And in our version, she says to Freud, I, I want to time travel. I want to time travel. I want to go to the ancient Greeks. I want to go to the, to the Aztecs. I want to go to the ancient Africans. And, 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 and I want you to hypnotize me and allow me to. And Freud says, I, I can't hypnotize you. I can't. And she says, I give you permission. He says, no, 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 you don't understand. I don't have the capacity to hypnotize. This is why I have invented the talking cure. Okay. And this, this whole thing was put together with masks and uh, puppets and, and African drums and percussion and, and performed to students and faculty and passersby and full houses all the way. Okay. So they're, the, the answer to my original question was that if you, if you build it properly, they will come. I'll tell you the beauty. To paraphrase, paraphrase badly from a popular yeah. film. So here's my point. America, and especially the universities, in particular the universities, are much more open to experiment. So we put together a really complex, I'm going to say illiterate project, meaning it did not, it willfully wouldn't allow a narrative to easily emerge. There was some kind of a big homage to certain kinds of addiction, obsession, and so on. But because it's a university, the audiences loved it. In fact, someone came out and said, I don't know what the F that's about, but I love it. 
<laughs> well, I, I've seen lots of things on stage where I have absolutely no clue what it really is about, but I was mesmerized by what I was seeing. Okay, we wish that was possible in this country. Well, I mean, my, just for reference, my daughter and I in Cape Town went to a performance by a work from someone from Algeria. One woman performance on stage. The prompt master, the prop master and the lighting master uh, was, a, was a Polish actor who didn't speak English or Arabic. So there was, there was a lot of frantic arm waving to make sure that the two of them were in the right direction. She did this entirely in very idiomatic Arabic and neither my daughter or I understood one word of what was being said on stage. And neither one of us could figure out what was actually about what we saw. But we stayed with it right through the end just to try to... But did it, in the end, did it satisfy? Well, it, it provoked conversations between the two of us for three days. You see, if, if we learned in this country to be more open to what we'll call the anti-narrative tradition, let's call it that. Because this was clearly anti-narrative. So I, I think that, I mean, in some ways, the strength of South African theatre has been its, its passionate commitment to reflect back to us our South African reality. So even if it's somewhat anti-natural, its essential element is realism. And that's fine. It's not a problem at all. And that gives us all the work of Ethel Fugard. It gives us a huge amount of South, South African black theatre. It's saying back to us, this is our world. Except that sometimes it says, uh, this is where we want our world to be. Yes, of course. So there's, and especially in television, of course, it's aspirational. Mm. But in theatre, it can also say this is where we want our world to be. But a lot of the time it says, in, in, with some delight, look how ugly and terrible our world is. And that's very theatrical. That's, that's kind of keyhole looking, though. Yeah, well, however it works, that's how it has worked. Now what we're waiting for, and we see the beginnings of, and it's, is the new generation. And when I was at the Naledi Awards recently, when Des got uh, honored on behalf of- Des Lindbergh, uh, singer, songwriter, uh, theater uh, adventurer. Yeah, and, and he and his late wife made the Naledis and made them happen. Anyway, he was honored, but on that stage, they also honored new theater companies that are not new. They've been in existence for 10 years, some of them, but they are independent, black theater companies and theater houses in various townships within 20 kilometers of the middle of Joburg. And I find that absolutely in, you know, exciting and wonderful. And it's also interesting that these things are happening and it's very hard to keep up. I used to make an effort in my youth, I'm no longer young, to see everything that- You're was younger on, than I am. Everything that was on in the town. I can't do that anymore. I have to be in bed by nine o'clock. It's a no, terrible it's, state. It's a common ailment. Yeah. It is, I mean, I, especially this last period of COVID has really uh, battered us all, but, but you can hear I'm, I'm full of energy for the new times. So if anybody's got a couple of million out there, the theater Linda needs it. <laughs> you're not supposed to do that. Oh, I know, I know, I know. But I mean, I also know it's unrealistic, but. We really want these independent theatres to take off because we cannot rely on the state-funded theatres as important as they are because they can only accommodate a small amount of work. 
I'm old enough to remember when Johannesburg had a sort of miniaturized version of, of West End or Broadway downtown. Yeah. With, what was it, three large venue yeah. commercial theaters and a clutch of other smaller commercial venues scattered around and near in suburbs. Like the Brook Theater itself. Yeah. Uh, Alhambra and, and so forth. Yeah. Uh, and all of those have vanished. Yes. And what's left downtown is the Joburg Theater with its new appendages in Rudaport and Soweto. Correct. The Market Theater. Correct. Uh, and its appendage at the Windy Brow. And, uh, and you, weren't, you want to say not much else, but you see, this is where I we stopped. Have, I stopped. I know you stopped because I think, I can't, I hope I've got the name right. There's a theater near the market called the Tin Town Theater or the yes. Tin Roof Theater. I mean, there's the theater at AFTA called the Red Roof Theater. I mean, if we actually identified the small spaces that are available, and, there are and for that two matter, universities, look, of course, and also let's not forget that some of the schools have got excellent venues, yeah. but they don't use them as creatively as they should. Perhaps that's a that's a polemical point for me because, you know, they can't be so precious they don't let them out or they don't encourage other work there or, but, and Vitz, for example, is so busy trying to sort out how to run and rejuvenate and recreate the Bits Theatre. It's not available to hire. I mean, to be honest, the reason I ended up at the Theatre Linden is I could not afford the Market Theatre. I don't particularly like the theatres at the Johannesburg, Joburg, I mean, the, the one that what they used to be called, the Nelady, I think it's called now, on the side. I like that theatre, but the big theatres, forget it. Et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. So something drew me to the Linden, and there I was. And of course, you know, at the moment, it's uh, they're very accommodating. Or we, because I'm on the committee now, we are very accommodating. We want people to come towards us and say, "Hey, let's do a deal." More polemics and more advertising. Yeah, no, I mean, the, but the, the point I was actually getting at was, we've been. This is now the third, or perhaps even the fourth version of theatrical spaces to meet new demands of the new kind of world we're in theater makers or uh, theater viewers or theater goers. This is The Deep Dive with Brooke Spector. And this is The Deep Dive and it's Brooke Spector and we're wrapping up our conversation with theater entrepreneur, theater intellectual, theater goer, theater maker, theater creator. Malcolm Perky, and we're, we've been talking about the theater of the future in South Africa uh, and why, among other things, uh, he is now, after all these many different parts of his career, helping to build and create a, yet another theater, this time in the suburb of Linden, uh, where they've been running theater there in what used to be a church for, what, six months now? Almost a year. Almost actually. a year. So even the middle of COVID, this thing was re was born. Uh, Phoenix rising from the, uh, the the medical ashes, as it were. Um, and I, one of the things that fascinates me about theater in this country, I was going to say is you talked about its realism, but I always thought of it in this the stuff that was created by South Africans for theaters here was how aspirational it was, how much it was about what we want it to be, 
and how we look forward to a world that is different, better, cleaner, purer, uh, more efficient, more something. So I suppose um, the, the big issue was that certainly my world from the early 70s all the way through till actually 99, when we created the last Junction Avenue play, Love, Crime and Johannesburg, the aspiration then was for freedom and, you know, the defeat of apartheid. And so anything made in that period, unless it was state run and meant to be a sort of a peculiar support of the apartheid vision. Counter to your vision, yeah, basically. Yeah, exactly. Everybody worth their salt, worth their clear thinking, was creating work that in some way engaged with this, with this idea that we are going to, that we are going to defeat apartheid. And I think um, one of the sad misnomers is protest theater, but you know, that's because I wanted to believe we were making a national project of theater. It wasn't just protest. Protest implied it has a limited life, et cetera. But if you think about the canon of South African theater, whether it's musicals or Fugard or any of the other pieces of work that were made, they were much more than protest. No, they, that's why I use the word aspiration. Absolutely, and they were about fighting for freedom. And we were, if you like, lucky in inverted commas to have such a classy enemy, such a big monstrous edifice of power that was nevertheless built on the most terribly fragile sand feet. Not, not without their guns and their torture, let's not ever forget that. No, there was a, it, it, the, the, the feet of clay were there, but then so were the, the, the iron things in their hands. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Uh, one other thought grabs me as we wind this up. Uh, Giuseppe Verdi, the composer, a dozen or more great operas, always dramatic, always filled with uh, struggle and arguments and death and uh, fighting and sometimes humor. Every once in a while, Falstaff is humorous. Was interviewed once by a major Italian newspaper. Mr. Verdi, what is your theory of opera? And Verdi looked at him and said, theory of opera? The seats should be filled. <laughs> yes, I am. A, I'm, 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 a, I'm a great embracer of that kind of an idea. But it doesn't mean that we have to sell our souls to do that. We have to find a way to find other people's souls. Yeah, you can, you can fill the seats and have people leave afterwards shaking their heads in, in anger or astonishment or wonder or singing the song outside of the theater on their way home. But, but not leaving the theater going, oh God, again, to quote my Mr. Brooke, you know, someplace tumbled towards you full of energy and life and image and thought and, and, and they fight each other. And then others are so sort of languid that your mind goes to sleep and your stomach turns to thoughts of dinner. Yeah, no, that would be an that would be an adventure, wouldn't it? But, well, the main point is we've got to make our work so beautiful that uh, we can't avoid it. It's as simple as that. Yeah, I mean, and, I mean, it's not simple, of course. And we have so many versions of what is compelling and what is beautiful and what is important, and but that's part of the the great game. And you do you do it so well. Well, it's been a great privilege and a pleasure. And I mean, I have to say, I was born and bred in South Africa. And it's, 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 in a sense, my complicated muse. Everything that it throws up. I mean, we're in terribly complicated times, but 
I'm looking for the theater that reflects that now. I'm going to ask you one last question because I know you have to move on to another appointment. You have a working life. If there's one piece of theater that you absolutely had to want to see again, your favorite, you're on the desert island, you've got to see this work again. Well, gosh, that's a hard question because, you know, I've seen a huge amount internationally. I mean, I once saw Kanto in New York and as the woman backed out the door singing what I guess was Yiddish, sort of songs of lament, I actually burst into tears. So that's a telling moment. But I also have a special place in my heart for the island. Ethel Fugard, John Carney and Winston Turner's reworking of Antigone in the most complicated, but beautiful, complicated, but beautiful purity of form. You know, something about that play. No, it's a, it, it, I, I don't want to use the word pinnacle lightly, but it really is. It's a, it, it's a layered piece of work. It's a wonderful piece of work and was very influential, as were many pieces. I mean, early Barney Simon works were wonderful to watch. Work of Workshop 71, wonderful to watch. I could go on all day. So you, you, you're not going to just give one. You're going to say there's a whole long list of works. Well, I mean, you know, I had the great privilege of traveling with Sophia Town for mm. three years. And we played in festivals where the best of the world was, was on the stage. And I had the chance to see all of this. And I've, I've written about it in various articles, you know, ranging from Robert Wilson to Cantor to Carbon 14 to a whole list of other work. Very influential, La Grand Magic Circus. And then we took that, or I did, and I tried to understand what made it work there and what we could do here. You, you talk about Sophia Town, and I've seen it, I don't know, four times, five times, something like that. And each time I see it, I forget that moment of discovery right at the end. Where Charlie finds out why he can't come with. Exactly. It's a terrible moment, actually. And it was so interesting. We had, we had the great privilege of Don Matera spending a day with us when we were working on the research and he just gave us so much information, which was wonderful. And we have been speaking with Malcolm Perkey uh, in his fourth or fifth iteration of, of his theatrical career. I've lost count, you just, you've just done lots. And uh, we've had a great time. And when Sophia Town comes around next, anyone listening who has not yet seen it, let's go see it again uh, or go see it for the first time. Malcolm, it's been a pleasure. Thanks very much for coming by. It's always a pleasure to sit with you, Brooks, and think about how, the, how crazy the world is. And this has been this week's version of The Deep Dive with Brooks Spector. And next week, we're going to have another conversation. Perhaps we'll go, we'll, we'll look more closely at some of the political or economic or electrical issues that confront South Africa. I haven't decided yet. We have been very lucky today. The electricity held up throughout the entire program. We were not in the dark, metaphorically. We were able to do our broadcast from our kitchen through High FM on to you, the listeners. If you have ideas, do let us know. Call in, send us a note, drop a line. We'd like to know the kinds of things you'd like us to engage in a deep dive with. With that, this is Brooke Spector. Thank you, and we'll talk with you again next week. <laughs>